Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald-Tribune political editor Zach Anderson, and I'm joined from Tallahassee by Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy. Hey, John. Hi, Zach. And joining me from Pembroke Pines is Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Fins. Hey, Antonio. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Well, Florida hosted the Super Bowl Sunday amid worries that it would become the Super Spreader Bowl. We'll discuss the concerns surrounding the big crowds of maskless revelers that the game attracted. Questions about whether Marco Rubio and Rick Scott are even paying attention at Trump's impeachment trial and police reforms pitched by black lawmakers this week. But first... Gentlemen, it's time for some numbers here. Antonio, you got a number for us? I do. I'm going to go with 17. All right. How about you, John? Zach, I'm getting back to my fractions this week with my number. It's three and a half. 3.5 decimal points are allowed. My number is 61. That's 17 for Antonio, 3.5 for John, 61 for me. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, before the opening kickoff Sunday, health officials were sounding the alarm that the Super Bowl could become a super spreader event. Videos taken before and after the game show crowds of maskless revelers partying around the Tampa Bay region. And a picture of Governor Ron DeSantis without a mask on at the game made the rounds of the Internet. This comes as a new, more contagious strain of the virus is quickly spreading in Florida, known as the UK variant. DeSantis slammed the media this week for highlighting these maskless crowds, saying, quote, you guys really love that. You don't care as much as if it's a, quote, peaceful protest, then it's fine. You don't care as much if they're celebrating a Biden election. You only care about it if it's people that you don't like. So I'm a Bucks fan. I'm damn proud of what they did. John, setting aside the fact that the governor seems to be saying the media hates football fans, which is an odd assertion to make, do you think the governor is on safe political ground here when he sort of shrugs off concerns about these crowds? I don't know. It just it seems like uh, those images of people partying in Ybor City after the Super Bowl reaffirm the feeling of a lot of people across America that Florida is just uh, turning a blind eye to the virus, uh, a, a view that yeah was pretty well established in the early days of the pandemic when DeSantis refused to uh, shut the state down with uh, spring break coming. Uh, now, just like with masks, uh, a lot of uh, coastal communities back when uh, DeSantis wouldn't close beaches or anything like that, a lot of coast, coastal communities sidestepped the governor and imposed restrictions on the local beaches. But uh, the image of the state was kind of set, you know, by the tone from the guy at the top. And it seems like we're seeing that again with the Super Bowl when uh, DeSantis was photographed speaking uh, maskless, of course, with somebody in a VIP box. This comes as uh, the daily death toll from the virus is still spiking to well over 200 in recent days. And uh, new cases are averaging around uh, 10,000 a day. Uh, so the vaccines are here and becoming more available, but still mostly to older Floridians and frontline healthcare workers. The the frontline retail, hospitality, and other service industry workers that have been keeping the Florida economy chugging along still seem to be well down the list for getting vaccines, even though they are certainly at high risk of catching the virus, which uh, seems so deeply entrenched in the state right now. Uh, Meanwhile, the governor is talking about the need for mitigation efforts, but he seems to look at them as an inconvenience and something to do only when you know a camera is trained on you 
Antonio, what are your thoughts? I mean, uh, you know, it's not just the media highlighting this. I mean, I'm talking to public health officials before this game, and and uh, they were they were worried that uh, you know that you know just like we saw over the holidays when you had Thanksgiving, Christmas, and and New Year's, and and there was a big uptick in cases during the holidays as people were gathering. There was concerns that people would gather, um, you know, during the Super Bowl, and and you know the the videos of the the crowds uh, over the weekend at um, the Tampa Bay region are just sort of the, the 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 visual manifestation of that, but I think it's really a concern that across the country people were just gathering and and maybe um, you know not giving um, the virus the the space to to kind of uh, continue this uh, downward trend. Well, yeah, and like John said, it's you know to pick up where he left off. It's it's also locally here in Florida, people are making huge sacrifices. Look, just this week. Two businesses here in South Florida canceled their events, one major and one smaller. In Miami, the Kiwanis Club of Little Havana cancels its Carnival Miami, which includes the internationally renowned Calle Ocho uh, Street Festival. And in Palm Beach County, the popular Loggerhead Marine Center also canceled its annual Turtle Fest. Both did so citing coronavirus concerns. The, The Kiwanis Club, in fact, said, you know, quote unquote, public health is a priority. You know, and the canceling of these events like Sunfest in West Palm Beach and, and the Miami International Boat Show are major sacrifices and they are major losses to the local economies. The Kiwanis Club, in fact, uses these events to raise money for things like you know, college scholarships and summer camps for lower income, underserved communities in the Miami area. I, I'm actually, full disclosure, I know about this because a, a cousin of mine was a former past president of the Kiwanis who ran the festival a quarter century ago. Uh, Turtle Fest is an opportunity to raise awareness in the public about sea turtle conservation efforts ahead of the critically important start of nesting season, which happens next month. So I, you know, I, I, it's impossible to emphasize enough how much of a sacrifice these organizations are making for the public good. And if these organizations can make that big a sacrifice, and certainly people celebrating a Super Bowl victory can be asked to respect social distancing rules and use face coverings. And that the governor responded with such a defiant and defensive attitude to a question about the Super Bowl celebrations is in a way a slap in the face to those businesses and civic groups that are making financial and social sacrifices in the name of public health. You know, Floridians can only wonder how these organizations, whether it's the Kiwanis Club or the Marine Manufacturers Association or Loggerhead Marine, feel after making these hard decisions and then watching the governor, the state's chief executive, defending the right of Super Bowl revelers to party in a carefree fashion because he, too, was proud of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers win. Uh, What's more, the governor seems to be supporting these self-defeating efforts. We have new virus strains proliferating through, through the state. The governor and state entities need to speak with one consistent voice, but that's very hard when the governor goes rogue as he did on Wednesday. Um, You know, the political danger for the governor is that he needs Florida to emerge from the pandemic. And I mean, we mean truly emerge, not this wallpaper rhetoric that's behind us, like, you know, his political mentor, Donald Trump, was talking about. We need the state to defeat the virus and get its business community and economy back to 3% or lower unemployment like we were two years ago. And the more that these self-defeating efforts and statements get out there, the more that we play pretend, the more time passes and the economic hole deepens. Yeah, and it should be noted that uh, these nonprofits that are canceling events, you know, they're they're not making 
billions of dollars on on TV revenue, uh, you know, to to compensate for that. You know, the NFL has this other revenue stream uh, from television. You know, they're they're making tons of money. Um, you know, uh, so uh, these other groups are are having real sacrifices when you cancel some of these events that are might be the main uh, money making uh, effort for them in a particular year. Well, Donald Trump's second impeachment trial kicked off this week. Rick Scott brought a book to read, and there were reports that both Scott and Marco Rubio were looking away and perusing other papers when the House impeachment managers presented their case. Antonio, it's been clear for a while that Florida's two U.S. senators won't be voting to convict, but should the public expect them to at least pay attention during the trial and maybe take it seriously? Well, let's talk about two more Florida politicians who are out of step and actually tone deaf is more like it. Look, both Rubio and Scott have made the argument that this impeachment trial is unconstitutional. And the listeners will recall that last week I did talk about the 1974 president set by Richard Nixon's departure from the White House and how that bolstered the claims by Scott and Rubio. And not so much because of constitutional questions, but because the way Nixon's case was handled by Congress was an applicable and reasonable process for dealing with former President Trump. That being said, Look, the Senate majority voted to continue with the trial. And yes, to answer your question, Zach, I, I think people I've heard from do not think it's unreasonable for, for Rubio and Scott to listen to the arguments and then ultimately explain why they were not, con not convinced by them. Instead, at the start of the trial, they were you know, reacting like high school kids who got the car keys taken away from them. Scott tweeted that he was reading a book on you know, the Civil War Battle of Vicksburg. An irony, given the images of pro-Trump rioters trotting through the you know, Confederate flags through the Capitol grounds that day. Yeah, it's a book that's about putting down an, an insurrection, right? I mean, and, yeah. and uh, while he's on trial for, uh, you know, uh, while he's uh, overseeing a trial for a president that is blamed for not putting down an insurrection. Yeah, and, and some of his followers, you know, carrying the flag that was an emblem of that insurrection. But... Uh, you know, and, and then Rubio also, you know, according to reports from the chamber, you know, he was like you mentioned before, he was keeping busy with paperwork. Now, here's the thing. The House Democrats prosecuting the case have zeroed in like lasers on the way the insurrection has beat and abused police officers. They have shown videos of the attacks, even from police officer body cams. They have played 911 recordings. They have shown clips of interviews with police officers who were injured during the, the riot. They have talked about the many cops who, who were seriously hurt from eyes being gouged to bludgeonings. They have played audio of rioters yelling profanities and obscenities at police officers. Now, reports from the uh, chamber on Wednesday, when there were these, this evidence was being showed, suggested that you know, pretty much all the senators, apparently including Rubio and Scott, seemed riveted by what they were seeing and what they were hearing. The exception was, of course, one Missouri Republican who sat up in the galley with, with his feet on the railing. Now, Rubio did tweet that the attack on the Capitol was far more dangerous than people realized, but again, called on the matter to be handled by the criminal justice system. The issue there is that it still minimizes the political nature of the insurrection. This wasn't just a matter of lawlessness or protest that got out of hand or spray painting binge or spray painting binge by two-bit vandals. This was an attack on the American political and constitutional system. It was an attempted coup an assault aimed at illegally keeping the president in power. And our two senators, with their book reading and paper shuffling, don't seem to want to acknowledge that. Now, look, we get it. Rubio has to play to the Trump crowd so he doesn't face a primary opponent in 2022, perhaps even from Ivanka Trump. And the question, though, is 
What happens if Rubio's opponent in the general election is someone like, I don't know, you know, maybe Val Demings, you know, the, the Orlando Congresswoman who is a former police officer and police chief? That diligent paperwork Rubio's taking care of right now could end up being politically costly. And what about Rick Scott? You may say, well, okay, he's not up for re-election until 2024. You know, true that. But Scott is the head of that Republican Senate group that's trying to raise money for the 2022 campaign to take the Senate back. What happens when he shows up to seek money from corporate donors and he's asked why he cared so little about what was an assault on police officers and America's peaceful trans transition of power? What's the response going to be? That, that learning the details of the Vicksburg campaign was more pressing at that moment? Gents, you know, many Florida voters may well agree with Rubio and Scott that this trial is unconstitutional. But I'm hearing that senators' antics in the ch Senate chamber overall is just not a good look. And and just uh, just to note, uh, Scott was asked about um, the the uh, attack on the Capitol after yesterday during a break in the impeachment trial, and he said, "You know, I'm I'm disgusted that people think they can do things like that and get away with it. I hope everybody that came into the Capitol and did the wrong thing gets prosecuted to the full extent of the law." Uh, according to NBC News, this is what he said. And he said, I've been clear that I wish the president had said something faster when they broke into it. Um, but, you know, I watched what he said. He's never said when somebody uh, that somebody should break in. And then he added that this is a complete waste of time and it's vindictive. So Scott seems to be um, trying to minimize Trump's role in this as much as he can. As uh, the impeachment trial moves forward uh, in Congress, Florida's Legislative Black Caucus unveiled a series of police reforms this week that are meant to address concerns raised by a series of police killings over the summer that generated widespread protests. The reforms serve as a counterproposal to legislation unveiled by Governor Ron DeSantis that would crack down on protests. John, what are the ideas uh, that are being discussed, and do you think they have a chance of moving forward? Well, the Legislative Black Caucus is overwhelmingly comprised of Democrats, so uh, that's a disadvantage right there in this uh, Republican-dominated state government. Uh, the approach that the black lawmakers are taking, though, really diverges from the uh, tough-on-protesters uh, take that the governor is supporting in the legislature, with his ideas looking to uh, expand penalties for violence and damage to property and limiting the authority of local governments to reduce spending on law enforcement for whatever reason. Um, Republican leaders in the legislature unveil these bills the night of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol in what seemed to be just a guise to make it look like these get tough on protesters uh, approach, that this was not aimed exclusively at Black Lives Matters protesters and uh, younger demonstrators. But you got to remember, DeSantis first floated a draft of his legislative idea in September. So very few believe that he had any intention of trying to crack down on the kinds of government overthrows engineered by President Trump or his base, which uh, DeSantis shares. Uh, but but as you mentioned, Zach, the, the Black Caucus is taking a very different approach. And this week, members highlighted some of the almost a dozen bills that they are supporting that would promote police use of uh, body and dashboard cameras, uh, uh, create a database to monitor officers that move from agency to agency after being disciplined. Uh, they would restrict uh, no-knock arrest warrants, uh, limit the use of military equipment by law enforcement agencies, and uh, overall kind of improve uh, data collection on uh, use of force incidents. I, I think we're going to hear a lot about these bills going forward, at least from Democrats seeking to get them heard and committed which uh, Republican leaders may have little interest in doing. 
But I think that some of these proposed reforms in the end will pass this year. I think Republican leaders are so intent on passing what they want, the so-called anti-mob bill, that they will realize that um, they'll try to look at least uh, to bring in a couple of these ideas that are being advanced by the Black Caucus as as needed to sort of broaden or balance uh, their get-tough approach. Do you have any sense of what which one of these are are more palatable to Republicans? For example, I spoke with um, Tommy Gregory, who's a Republican House member from this area, and he's pushing a bill um, that that the primary focus of it is to make an assault on a police officer a hate crime if there's evidence of prejudice. But inside he tucked inside that bill, he he tucked in some language that would increase training. For law enforcement officers, crisis training for them. And, and that seems to me like something that's, you know, Republicans could get behind is providing additional training or things like that. Do you have any sense of what, um, you know, what could get some bipartisan support and in, in terms of police reform? Well, I, I do think, yeah, so, something like that might be able to be worked in there, that it's something that doesn't have that, that you know, vehement opposition from the Fraternal Order of Police or the uh, Sheriff's Association. And uh, it would also be something that looks a little bit like a reform. It's a, it's a modest step, but a, a smart step. And I think something like that could make it. Also, uh, you know, maybe getting passed might be the uh, a new database by the, uh, you know, Florida Department of Law Enforcement on use of force incidents. Uh, that would be something that the state could monitor more closely. Or maybe another database following officers who move to different police agencies after being disciplined. Try to make that a little bit more accessible to uh, to, to at least the agencies that are looking to hire them. Uh, so I'm thinking uh, something right now might come out of this contrast between the uh, Black Caucus and the governor. Uh, but, you know, it, it may come out for all the wrong reasons, because basically Republicans are looking to get some optics that make it look like they are not targeting uh, minority protesters or young protesters, but actually looking to uh, enact some form of, uh, you know, police agency reform. Well, this is a big deal. You know, it's something that generated protests across uh, the whole state. And I, I've never seen anything quite like it, where you had sustained protests, people marching down the, the center of Main Street in Sarasota for, for a whole week. Um, you know, it's certainly something that um, is a pressing uh, concern for a lot of people in terms of uh, what they view as uh, some bias in policing that needs to be corrected. But there's a lot of opposition to it as well. There's been a huge backlash to to some of these protests, the Back the Blue uh, movement um, and, and an effort to rally around police, especially by Republicans. So it's a it's an issue that's you know gotten wrapped up in some of the culture wars. It's a fraught issue, but it, it's one that. Um, Seems like it's going to get some attention in the legislature this year. We'll move on to our numbers here. Uh, Antonio, you had a 17. Tell us about that. Yes, it's been three years since the terrible and heartbreaking mass shooting at Marjorie Stillman Douglas High School in Parkland, in which 17 students, teachers, and staff members were murdered. And three years later, it's still hard, hard to understand this senseless act and hard to fathom the amount of pain and loss the, uh, the surviving loved ones of those 17 that were lost that day, the, the, the kind of pain that they must feel every day. Uh, but since that awful afternoon, attempts to seek federal gun safety legislation have largely been stymied, but there is renewed hope this year. The reason for the optimism is that there is a new president in the Oval Office and someone who once succeeded in banning and working to ban 
assault weapons. Uh, Democrats also hold the gavels in Congress, albeit by very slim majorities. And the National Rifle Association is in financial straits. So the political climate in Washington appears to be much more favorable to gun safety legislation than it has been in decades. And in fact, this week, uh, Palm Beach Post reporter Christine Snippleton interviewed Shannon Watts, the founder of Moms Demand Action, which is a gun safety organization with more than 6 million supporters across the country. And uh, Shannon told Christine that she believes the wait is over, quote unquote. And in fact, Western Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz intends to reintroduce Jamie's Law, a bill that would require universal background checks for the sale of gun ammunition. The legislation is named in honor of Jamie Gutenberg, who was one of the students that was killed at the Parkland High School. Uh, Boca Raton Congressman Ted Deutsch, whose district includes Parkland, has already reintroduced the Luke and Alex School Safety Act. And that legislation is co-sponsored by three other Florida lawmakers from both sides of the aisle. It includes Democrat Stephanie Murphy of Orlando and Republicans Mario Diaz-Balart of Miami and Northeast Florida's John Rutherford. That legislation would codify into law a federal clearinghouse that categorizes, assesses, and shares best practices for school safety measures and identifies the resources necessary to implement them. And the act honors Luke Hoyer and Alex Schachter, who both were also killed in that 2018 Valentine's Day school shooting. Uh, Jamie Gutenberg's father, Fred, uh, who was has been an unswerving gun control proponent in the past few years, told us that he too is optimistic. Uh, he told Christine, I'm realistic. This is not going to be easy, but gun safety is going to pass. If so, that will be a great achievement, but that it took the 17 lives at Parkland and not to mention the many, many others who have been lost in mass shootings that, that it took their lives to get this legislation done uh, would indeed be a very high price to pay for that. And, uh, you know, like a, a very, very high price to, to pay for what should be really sensible gun legislation, as, as many Floridians have said in polls and, and in surveys. Yeah, it, it'll be fascinating to see what happens with that, because, you know, the Democrats uh, controlled House is is certain to pass some of this stuff. Uh, it has to get 60 votes in the Senate, which is a big obstacle, but I could definitely see, uh, you know, a universal background check bill passing. That's an issue that's like 80 or 90 percent of people support it. When you look at the polls, I know uh, the Republican congressman in this area, Vern Buchanan, has supported um, universal background check legislation in the past. So that does seem like an issue where you could get, um, you know, 10 Republican uh, senators to to support that. John, you had three point Five. Tell us about that. Yeah, I did, Zach. Three and a half feet is the projected sea level rise in the Tampa Bay area by the year 2060. So if Tampa is in the running for Super Bowl uh, 94, uh, figure Tom Brady will be 82 by then. So the Bucks may have had to uh, draft another quarterback. But uh, uh, a, a lot of what we know about the region is going to be underwater by then. The uh, sea level rise projected in just over 40 years, that was part of a, a presentation just a couple of days ago to a house committee that was listening to testimony from the uh, tampa bay regional planning council and it comes in a year where governor DeSantis has proposed a one billion dollar resilient florida fund that would uh, distribute money over four years to cities and counties needing help to deal with climate change uh, you know water and sewer work uh, shoreline hardening and restoration and to uh, kind of help smaller communities just finally get around uh, and plan for the water that sure looks like it's uh, coming our way. Uh, now, DeSantis's idea is a departure from former Governor Rick Scott, who is now in the uh, U.S. Senate, who uh, 
for eight years in office as governor, he refused to acknowledge that climate change existed. Uh, DeSantis, by contrast, he appointed a chief resilience officer when he first took office, and that was a major step, although that person was short-lived in the administration, moving on to a role in the Trump administration instead. The uh, the governor's uh, step, though, on the uh, impact of climate change was uh, welcomed by a lot of the environmentalists. Uh, Florida's uh, Republican-led legislature now is being asked to approve the governor's big spending idea, which is mostly built around bonding, so there's not a lot of cash needed up front. But there seems to be some general quibbling in the House State Affairs Committee, which heard the presentation this week from local governments and the governor's office about the uh, potential economic impact on uh, Florida of climate change. But it's a uh, it's a big idea for DeSantis, and uh, some think it's long overdue. Uh, environmentalists still point out that the governor is not recommending anything that would reduce the state's carbon footprint or attempt to lower the state's production of greenhouse gases, uh, even setting goals like former Governor Charlie Crist once did, uh, that that would be welcome, they say. But uh, still with uh, three and a half feet of rising Tampa Bay, and there are similar numbers forecast for South Florida and other parts of the state's long shoreline, there is the feeling that we have to do something uh, relatively quickly. And uh, while there's a marked difference between Scott and DeSantis on the subject of climate change, they both share the same environmental protection secretary who is now serving under his second Republican governor. And uh, maybe he's aptly named for a government official facing sea level rise. He's Noah Valenstein. So, uh, so get the ark ready, Florida. Noah Valenstein will be at the, at the helm. You know, it can be hard for politicians to wrap their head around things that are, are so far into the future and, and commit to planning for them. But maybe after what we've seen with this pandemic and uh, realizing what a disaster you can have on your hands if you don't plan for things and, and uh, don't um, you know have some of these emergency uh, response efforts in place, uh, maybe um, planning ahead and, and uh, for these disasters gets a little bit more uh, attention going forward. Well, my number is 61, as in uh, 61% of seniors in Leon County, Florida have received the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, that's the highest percentage of, of any county in the state, according to uh, Governor Ron DeSantis at a press conference yesterday. Leon County is home to the great city of Tallahassee, and it's known more for uh, college students at FSU and Florida A&M than a large senior population, which is probably one reason that a larger percentage of seniors have been vaccinated there than elsewhere. There's just fewer of them. Alachua County, home to Gainesville, another college town, also has a high percentage of seniors vaccinated at 56%. Meanwhile, Sarasota County, which is a big retirement destination is where uh, I happen to live, only has 25% of seniors vaccinated. DeSantis mentioned these numbers during a visit to Sarasota County yesterday and said he planned to send more vaccine to areas with a lower percentage of seniors vaccinated, which is interesting because it means that based on their total population, these retirement heavy areas could get a disproportionate share of the vaccine in the short term. Meanwhile, places such as Leon County could see vaccinations slow to a trickle once the vast majority of seniors get the shot. All that could change once we get the next phase of vaccinations, which is likely still weeks, if not months away. Right now, 35% of Florida seniors have been vaccinated. 
Well, that wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy, and thanks to all of you for listening. Stay safe. We're out of here.